Hi, everybody. I'm Jim Higdon. I, uh, um, it's my second time at the Davies County Library. It's good to be back in Owensboro. Um, came in from Louisville, which, as we discussed, is a small town. <laughs> uh, so I do these book talks from time to time. Like a Book tours are supposed to end pretty quickly after the books are, are, are published, but I've been on this perpetual book tour for like five years now. Um, gives me something to do, so I'm very happy to... To, to be here and to talk about um, these sorts of subjects that I bring up in the book. Um, and usually I only talk as long as it takes folks to get um, comfortable enough to ask questions. I'm here for you. So um, to the extent that uh, you want to interrupt me to ask me a question, just get in there because uh, this time is for you, not for me. So um, I will sort of uh, tee this thing up and get us started and then hopefully uh, you guys can jump in and start um, um, ask me what's on your mind. Um, I grew up in Lebanon, Kentucky, Marion County. Uh, so, um, and I grew up hearing all the stories of the sorts of trouble that my parents' generation got into, uh, which happened to uh, have all... Uh, ended by the time I was old enough to get in trouble myself. Um, mostly I thought it was all made up. Um, so one of the really rewarding things about having done this book research is going back and finding um, documentary evidence of a lot of these stories that I had heard growing up as a kid, whether that's Ike and Tina coming to play at Club 68 or um, the hot air conditioner incident that I relate in the book about... Uh, uh, the nuns who run the hospital in Lebanon getting caught with a number of stolen air conditioners from GE. And by a number, I think it was either 20 or 50. It was a number of them. Um, so, I mean, I'd heard that story my whole life, and the hot air conditioner incident was uh, a term that was thrown around um, well before I understood what hot was in that context. Um <laughs> <laughs> uh, so to find evidence of it being in fact true was very rewarding when I was in 7th and 8th grade is when um, parents of my friends started getting arrested for their involvement in this um, elaborate uh, multi-state marijuana conspiracy that later became known as the Cornbread Mafia uh, and so that was a very um, important um, moment in my young life and in the in the community's life as well. It was this period where the federal government and the media were portraying the community I was from in a way that the community felt was unfair. And so, um, as a kid, watching my parents and my and, and my parents' generation come to terms with um, what was going on. First, they were upset at. Uh, the people getting arrested for bringing another bad reputation to Marion County. It was its third bad reputation in 50 years, you know, depending on how you count. Um, and they'd just gotten over the other bad reputation they felt. So um, it was very frustrating for people in the community who, tr who were trying to make Marion County have a uh, better reputation in, in the eyes of people from the surrounding counties. Um, 
But then they started to be upset at the media and the federal government for unfairly um, um, criticizing the entire community as having played host to this um, uh, crime syndicate. So between 1985 and 1989, 70 white Catholic men, mostly from Marion County, but also Nelson and Washington counties, which are immediately adjacent, Bardstown, Springfield, Lebanon, uh, 70 central Kentucky men arrested on 30 farms in 10 states with 200 tons of marijuana. Um, of those 70 that were arrested, zero of them agreed to testify against any of the others, which is remarkable. Um, you know, even, even Italian organized crime doesn't have lips that tight. Um, we, we know about Goodfellas. Goodfellas is a movie. Goodfellas was a book because Henry Hill was a rat, right? We know about Goodfellas because Henry Hill ratted out all those guys and then went on to write a book about it. Um, so I had to go about doing this book without the, without the benefit of someone who had turned state's evidence because none of them talked. So because none of them talked, the federal government, the task force, the prosecutors that were tasked with prosecuting um, the syndicate that they, um, uh, that, the investigators began referring to as the cornbread mafia, whether either that was something that the law enforcement community came up with or members of the syndicate themselves came up with it. Um, and it, it hard to determine how, like where the origins of the term came from. But the first time it was mentioned in public was this press conference in 1989 when federal law enforcement um, task force prosecutors hosted a um, press conference at the federal courthouse, essentially because, because the 70 people were quiet and did not rat out the other people in the, in the group. Um, investigators thought they knew who the kingpins were, but without a witness, they couldn't prosecute them as kingpins. Um, so what they did was they had a press conference and basically laid out their prosecution case to the cameras and to the media, but didn't give anyone that they were prosecuting uh, this case regarding. They didn't give anyone a chance to defend themselves. Um, so it was kind of an unfair balance of power. Basically, the prosecution laid out their entire case against people uh, and said these people were the kingpins uh, without charging them with those crimes um, because they were thwarted because no one talked. Um, so that was the big sort of uh, atomic bomb that hit Marion County uh, the summer of 1989. And that's the first time the Cornbread Mafia as a term was put into the public. And the wire, um, the wire syndicates, the Associated Press, UPI, um, ran these stories um, with Cornbread Mafia in the headlines. And those headlines hit wire services and made international news. Um, Right in the book, someone from Marion County was working PricewaterhouseCoopers in Sydney, Australia, and her co-workers um, wallpapered her cubicle with Sydney Morning Herald uh, newspapers that referred to the Cornbread Mafia. And she was like, why? You know, like, <laughs> why? <laughs> um, 
but that was a good story to you know to to hear all those years later because it it helped underscore the impact of that of that press conference. It wasn't a small thing. It it literally wrapped the globe um, because the term was so evocative. And, and as she said, uh, they don't even, they didn't even have cornbread in Australia. They didn't even know what it is. <laughs> like you know, the closest thing that they would have had would be something like polenta, and that doesn't that doesn't that doesn't make you know the polenta mafia is something else. <laughs> So that's why this story was important to me. And I went off to become a writer and trained to be a writer um, and needed something to write about. And here was this story that no one had written about where everyone that I knew with, you know, um, everyone I knew who was, you know, a writer, I knew a father of my. A uh, school friend was a local journalist. He had talked about writing a book about it. Other journalists that I had known had talked about writing a book about it, but no one had. Um, and so I was living in New York. I went to the Columbia Journalism School. Uh, while at Columbia, I took a book writing course that taught us how to put together a nonfiction book proposal. Um, and so I had just like, several light bulb moments during Columbia realizing, oh, this is how this is how you do this. I can get court transcripts and go through an entire trial in the transcripts and figure out everything that I need to know uh, whether someone wants to talk to me or not. Um, and then go to them and say, well, you know, I've read the transcripts of your case and boom, 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 boom. And if they don't want to talk to me after all I know from the court case, like, I have enough, right? So that was a big light bulb moment for me because no one was going to talk. And, 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 and it turned out for the first year of my reporting on this book, no one did talk to me. Um, it was a very frustrating and lonely period of time. Um, no one was talking. It got really scary and sad. Um, I recount in the book this moment where... so. If no one's going to talk to me about what happened in the 70s and the 80s, then I'm going back a few decades and start asking about previous stuff and working my way forward, which is how I get into the Charlie Styles business um, in the book, because he was the sort of um, uh, the, he was the top outlaw um, in the pre-marijuana generation, and so start doing some research on him. Uh, and then I do all that church history and the genealogy history, which is how I'm going, one of the reasons I'm going to this conference at Brescia tomorrow, um, because I've done all this church history tracing um, the, the, gene the, the, the migration patterns of, of Maryland Catholics from Maryland to Holy Cross, Kentucky in 1790, uh, because Basil Hayden leads a group of 60 families from St. Mary's County, Maryland, uh, to Holy Cross, Kentucky, and he brings his still with him. So there's <laughs> there's a still a solid five years before there's a church, and that's the, <laughs> and that's the first Catholic church west of the Appalachian Mountains. Now, I've said first Catholic church west of the Appalachian Mountains a number of times, and now I have to caveat it with. Uh, the first English-speaking, the first 
Anglo-American Catholic Church west of the Appalachian Mountains because there's definitely some like French-Canadian Catholic stuff going on and there's like Spanish Catholic stuff in California and you got New Orleans and whatnot. So in Spanish Florida, so like not counting all of that, like just like, you know, like um, Anglo-American Catholic um, church um, was built, I guess, I'm, I'm rusty on dates, uh, but around 1790, 1795. Um, and Basil Hayden goes on to be, um, his great-grandsons are start bottling his weeded whiskey, weeded bourbon, as old granddad. So old granddad has been around for oh, a long time. Oh, that, I mean, the old granddad that they still... Old granddad that you still get in the liquor store. Not you, of course, but other people. No, not me. <laughs> <laughs> the old granddad that they had a big stealing of a couple years ago. That's Pappy Van Winkle. That's, oh, okay. And I can talk to you about that one, too. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> if anybody's stealing that much old granddad, they have bigger problems than you and I can get to the bottom of. But that, but now, but now they they bottle old granddad at one fifteen. Uh, Jim Beam does one hundred fifteen proof, which is basically um, the Basil Hayden. They water down to eighty proof, so it's those are basically the same uh, bourbons. It's a it's a high weeded uh, uh, bourbon ratio, so that's what gives it its its particular flavor. Um, but those descendants of Basil Hayden and that group of, of, of Holy Cross Catholics is where we, uh, where the Central Kentucky Catholic distilling tradition began. And it's what, uh, and it's the same families that were involved in Prohibition running moonshine. Um, Kentucky was the northernmost moonshine producing state um, during Prohibition and with roads and um, railroads and also by that point uh, I don't know if we're flying airplanes back and forth to Chicago in the 20s or not so I hesitate to say for sure the airport but the the um, transportation of um, illegal moonshine from Kentucky to Chicago and Kentucky Kentucky to Cincinnati was a really big enterprise. And a lot of these same family names are the same ones that we're talking about. So I, I've not done the um, family trees of the, of the Hayden family, but Basil Hayden uh, begins this story. And one of the endpoints of the story is Daryl Hayden, uh, who President Obama pardoned, not pardoned, commuted his sentence. Um, Daryl Hayden was serving life without parole for uh, the three strikes violations. He had um, been arrested three times on federal charges for marijuana cultivation. His last charge was in 2002 in Michigan on a farm with 19,000 plants, which is a lot of plants. (laughs) Um, So he had been in prison from 2002 until... Obama commuted his sentence in 2016. So now he is home and on Facebook and has, I don't know, you know, five, five or 600 Facebook friends. Um, um, so yeah, Daryl Hayden, he's on Facebook. So, you know, go say hi to him. He's, you know, he, 
Um, he's one of three people from Marion County that President Obama granted clemency to. Um, and uh, he and another were, were had their sentence commuted. Uh, also, uh, Aaron Glasscock had his, um, had his sentence commuted. Um, he's a younger guy. He's about my age. Um, but that's the, um, the general sense of this, of this story as a, as a, um, in, in broad strokes, what, what brought me to it, what got me interested in it, what made me want to tell this story in a way that, um, gets all of the action packed criminal stuff in there, but also portrays these, the, characters involved as actual humans with families, not cardboard cutout criminal types. Uh, you know, I, it was important to me to, to give some cultural context to where these, where these folks are coming from. Um, in, in, the, in the beginning of the book, I uh, uh, pair a bunch of headlines from, from one newspaper. So the, the Lebanon Enterprise is the hometown paper in Lebanon in Marion County. And I went back through it um, for every every week of the 13 years of prohibition, and pulled all of the headlines and all the stories um, from the newspaper that were uh, moonshine, bootlegging, prohibition related, and then sort of boiled down the best of those headlines, and then compared them to the same newspaper from the 1980s when when the marijuana headlines were really big and sort of line them up against each other to sort of show how similar um, things were at the time. I mean, in the, in the 20s up to 33, during Prohibition, the pages of the Lebanon Enterprise read like a comic book. There's just like gunfights and car chases and <laughs> revenuers leaping off of the running boards of one moving vehicle onto another moving vehicle and just things that seem really crazy um, and these elaborate stories. So I, through it, I, I, I learned who George Remus was. And then um, fortunately for all of us, uh, if, if you watched any of the Boardwalk Empire on HBO, George Remus becomes a character. He's, he's sort of a lesser known, prominent prohibition era gangster, but he's very much an Al Capone type. Um, for Cincinnati, where Al Capone was Chicago. So George Remus in Cincinnati um, would do things like uh, invite the hundred most prominent couples for um, his Christmas parties, and he gave um, all of the men diamond watches and all the women uh, Cadillacs. Um, was he the Great Gatsby uh, inspiration? Yeah, he's... Hold on a second. I, um, George Remus gets married at the Seelbach, which is where right. Gatsby gets married. Yeah. Um, so uh, Gatsby is an amalgamation of, of, of a number of gangsters of that period, but I, I think Remus is definitely like thinking that. Uh, along those lines. Um, but one of Remus's genius business decisions, so he was a defense attorney in, in Cincinnati, before he got involved in the business and he realized that his clients who didn't have any education at all were making more money than him. <laughs> and so he figured, well, if these guys can do it, then I can. So 
he read the Volstead Act and found a loophole that was essentially a person or an entity could transport liquor if it were going to a licensed uh, pharmacy, if it were if it were medical, right? So there's a whole thing about medical medicinal bourbon during Prohibition, right? Uh, Old Forester is not only the oldest bottled bourbon, uh, but it's continuously bottled because Old Man Brown had a medicinal contract to bottle Old Forester as medicinal bourbon for the duration of Prohibition, right? Um, so what Remus would do is in a place like Marion County or Nelson County where there were these um, distillery warehouses filled with bourbon, it wasn't illegal for that bourbon to be sitting in those warehouses aging. The existence of that bourbon was not a crime. It was only a crime if you sold or transported it. So it could sit there. And every summer it sat there, it became more valuable <laughs> as Prohibition dragged on. So what Remus would do is he would buy a warehouse and then begin to transport the contents of that warehouse to a, um, like a, a pharmaceutical wholesale supply company that he established in Newport, Kentucky. So that on paper, it looked like he was buying whiskey from existing warehouses to transport to his wholesale pharmaceutical supply company so that he could then distribute it to pharmacies in a legal manner. But what would happen was, is someone else would steal the bourbon when it was in transit and that someone else was also George Remus. <laughs> and by stealing his own supply and then diverting it into the black market, um, he made a lot, a lot of money. Um, and, and, and I encountered these elaborate tales in the newspaper of these two-bit gangsters from big city Ohio coming into Lebanon to steal liquor uh, in massive quantities. And then... They would, they, you know, like they were, uh, something about there was at one point an, an REO speed wagon involved, um, which is great. And they had apparently two identical REO speed wagons that they would load up one of them because it's a speed wagon was basically like a, a covered, um, it's a wagon, like a station wagon with no windows in the back. So you could put, a, you know, a, apparently a few barrels in the back of there and not see what it is. And they had two that were identical, and at night they would swap them out. They would drive them somewhere and swap out the speed wagons and move out bourbon that way where no one knows. Um, but that, those sorts of stories became really fascinating to me and became really good fodder for some of the early chapters in this thing while I was getting folks who had real experience in the 70s and the 80s to warm up to me, and I could get them to warm up to me by sharing with them this prohibition research that I was finding, like, did you know about this? And bring them newspapers and just sort of, like, get them talking about stories. Um, and then they would, you know, start sending me to old people to talk to them about things that maybe 
I could get from earlier generations. If they weren't going to talk to me, they would start to like, you know, send me around. And I remember going to go see uh, Rosemary Peterson, um, who was at the time I went to go see her about 92. Um, her daughter, Mary Rose, had taught me in school. So she knew exactly who I was, right? <laughs> Um, and the Peterson farm in Northern Marion County, like on the Nelson County line is massive. I don't know how big the Peterson farm is, but it is really big. And the story is whether it's true or not, is that Rosemary Peterson's father was something of a moonshiner and bootlegger back in his day. And, um, apparently astutely transferred a lot of his, um, profits into land purchases and expanded the family farm significantly. The Peterson farm currently has uh, an exclusive contract with Maker's Mark for all of its wheat. So it's a big prominent farm. (laughs) Um, So I want to go talk to Mary Rose Peterson about would she talk to me about her father during Prohibition? Being that she you know, not sure, but I'm, I, my understanding is that you're the daughter of a moonshiner. Would you talk to me about that? And she patted me on the hand and said, tell your mother and father I said hello. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the kiss off. Uh, and so that was a very low moment in my uh, research phase of this book because like, what the hell am I going to do? If I can't get a 92-year-old woman to talk to me who knows who I am, <laughs> what am I, I going to do? So luckily, I, you know, I, 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 I made a couple of breakthroughs along the way, and um, it took over a year to get Johnny Boone on the record. Um, but then once Johnny Boone started talking to me, um, mostly because he realized that I knew more than he wanted me to know, um, so the first thing to ask a person uh, like a Johnny Boone uh, is you get them to sign a waiver to allow you to search their FBI and DEA files for them. Um, and he agreed to do that on the condition that I um, bring them to him first and let him go through the documents before he lets me see them, which was an easy thing to agree to because that's a, that's basically what I was doing anyway to begin with. I was searching his records on his behalf. Um, and in that way, he and I started a, um, a partnership going through these documents and I was getting a lot of documents, not just about him, about all this stuff from DEA and FBI and state police from Kentucky and state police organizations in other states. There's all these open records requests all over the place, and I would get envelopes and boxes of stuff back. This is before, like now they send them on CDs, but not then. And uh, I would take them to him, so then I could go back in a couple of days, and he would tell me what I had. So we developed this cycle of me getting to go see him a few times a week. And uh, um, he um, is, a re- is a really smart man and familiar with government documents um, because 
since he has a reputation of a of a man who who keeps his mouth shut at his own um, at at the expense of his own freedom. Um, when he was inside, a lot of people shared a lot of things with him. Um, and so he saw a lot of other people's court documents besides his own. Uh, so he was really good at helping me go through them. And um, that's when I finally had like a whole book instead of a part of a book. When I finally had Johnny helping me out tell his story and, and, and shape the, 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 the top part of the story of this is how these guys went about doing this business. Um, on top of the prohibition and on top of the Catholic migration stuff, I was able to, to, to build a fairly compelling um, beginning, middle, and end of this massive marijuana syndicate that, um, now keep in mind this 200 tons number is just, you know, pie in the sky, law enforcement numbers. Um, to give you a sense of uh, how they were figuring these numbers, Johnny Boone and 20 of his associates, give or take, were arrested in, that, in Minnesota in late October of 1987. And Minnesota authorities estimated that the haul on that farm was 90 tons. Now, they came to 90 tons because they weighed one, one dump truck load and they multiplied that dump truck load by 62, which was the number of dump truck loads of marijuana they took off the farm. And then so much marijuana was still on the farm that they just took that time 62 number and doubled it and got to 90 tons. During the sentencing phase, one of the cops on the stand uh, confessed that that was a, a a rough estimate because in his words the amount of marijuana present was inconceivable <laughs> uh, it was just more than they had ever even thought about thinking about it was just a lot um, and so that's how I got you know knee deep into all this and was able to sort of write out a um, minute by minute story about how that stuff went down with the court records and the and the police file and interviews with people who were involved I was able to flesh it out it's really helpful to have a framework of um, like the documentary framework of something that happened especially a crime that was 20 years old uh, to take it to people to help them refresh their memories like here's what happened from these documents as you know as the framework and that way their memory doesn't get too far afield and I'm able to sort of you know you know and I talked to the cops who were involved and I talked to um, the outlaws that were involved and 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 was able to put these scenes together in a way that hopefully reads like a novel um, but is all word for word uh, factual um, I've talked for a long time now there's bound to be questions <laughs> Did uh, did a lot of other guys trust you more once Johnny brought you into the circle there? It's a good question, and probably that would have been the case. There's Jimmy Bickett was was the one person that Johnny told that he was talking to me, mm -hmm. and so Jimmy Bickett opened up to me 
through Johnny uh, opening up to me. But one of the other conditions of me talking to Johnny was I wasn't allowed to tell anybody that I was talking to Johnny. So there was a couple of times, this was 2007 when I was hanging out with him, a couple times in 2007 where he and I, where Johnny and I were in the same place at the same time. And someone would say something like, oh, you're writing a book, you got to meet Johnny Boone. And would go over and introduce me to Johnny Boone, and I'd seen him like earlier that day. Right. But we had to pretend like I was meeting him for the first time. Like, yeah, it's great to meet you. And he would say, "It's good to meet you too." Now, what are you doing? And we'd like, you know. And then later on, we'd laugh about it. So, uh, yes, it would have, but I couldn't say anything right. about it, so it didn't. <laughs> uh, but mostly, a lot of these guys that I wanted to talk to me. I wouldn't talk at all. Right. Joe Keith Bickett didn't talk to me. Bobby Joe Shoemaker didn't talk to me. Um, and um, it would have made the book better had they. Um, but I got just enough right. to, to, to piece together the, you know, like, I know a lot more than I was able to write about because mm-hmm. I just didn't have the goods. Um, but I, I had just enough to sort of get me across all the points to the end. So, um, you know the seventy guys that were that didn't, wouldn't talk. Mm-hmm. Yes, ma'am. Are 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 all of them uh, out of jail now? So, of the seventy that were arrested, most of them only like. A lot of them only did six months, 18 months, you know, like the, the ones who were there for, as workers. Uh, you know, it was very work-intensive um, harvesting that, like a marijuana crop that size. You had, like, you know, you know, a dozen people sitting in circles, like just cutting um, uh, buds off of branches. So a lot of those people only did a short amount of time. Now, um, I guess there was a period where everyone was out of jail. Bobby Joe Shoemaker was the longest in. He did something like 30 years because he got like a 20-year sentence or 20, he got a 20-year sentence, but then he was also a fugitive for five years, so he got a little extra bonus time for having been a federal fugitive for five years. Um, So he just got out not too long ago, but now Johnny Boone is back in prison because he was a fugitive for eight years and from 2008 till the end of last year. So now Johnny Boone is in federal custody awaiting trial on his third strike at 73 years old. He will likely spend the rest of his life in prison. on marijuana crimes uh so he is back in so of those 70 i think johnny is the only one in prison and he was out of prison from 2002 until he went on the run in eight and then he got caught in 16 and now he's in prison or jail he's in Oh, so he got out. Um, no, he got caught uh, cultivating again in two thousand eight. Oh, okay. 
So in, in, in late May of 2008, uh, state police and the, and the DEA flew a helicopter over his farm and found him with something like 2,000 marijuana seedlings in flower pots. He had them on uh, two flatbed trailers. He was pulling them out of his barn to get sunlight and then putting them back in. Um, and they happened to fly over him right as he had them out of the barn. So it seems like maybe somebody tipped him off. Because yeah. late May, early June is not a typical time uh, for, for marijuana ERAD flights. And they usually fly those August and like, September. Um, so that's curious, but that w was his is his third federal strike. So because the three strikes law is still on the books, your third federal strike, the sentencing for that is a mandatory life in prison without parole. Are you still in contact with him? I am in. So uh, I am back in contact with him now that he is in jail. How do you feel about the book? I have not. Really? We've not no. talked. We've not talked. Well, I mean, I've, I've only spoken with him on the phone like uh, twice since he's been in jail, and I haven't talked to him in eight years. So there's a lot to a lot to catch up on. Um, so I haven't gotten deep into his read on the book. I assume at this point that he's that he knows about the book. He's probably read the book. Um, it seems like my stock is still okay with Johnny, so I don't think that he's upset with me, even though there were some things in the book that I, I reported and wrote about that he asked me not to, uh, but I did anyway. Um, so you were a rat. <laughs> please don't. Sorry. Uh, I have been called a rat, yeah. Uh, the, there's not a lot of difference between... In, in, in some folks' mind, not a lot of difference between talking to law enforcement and talking to a journalist. Um, and that was one of Johnny's concerns, is that he didn't want people to think that he was a rat for talking to me. Uh, what I ended up writing about in the book that Johnny asked me not to was he asked me not to write about his family because he didn't want to hurt his family any more than he already had. And then, especially since his son committed suicide, Jeff committed suicide, and then his um, um, girlfriend at the time or his um, well, he had a, an ex-girlfriend uh, who also committed suicide so there were these two recent deaths in his past and when he was a fugitive a deputy U.S. Marshal went on America's Most Wanted and suggested that these two deaths that were ruled as suicides were more insidious than that and that Johnny Boone was responsible for these deaths uh, without any evidence to, 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 to back it up. So I had to make a decision. This is after Johnny had become a fugitive. Um, do I honor Johnny's request and not write about his son's suicide? Or do I write about his son's suicide because this deputy U.S. Marshal just went on national television and said that Johnny had killed his son? So... I made a decision to write about that stuff so that I could prove that the stuff was, that the marshal's office was saying about him in, 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 in the public sphere was deliberately inaccurate. Um, it was a good call. Right, but it wasn't without some trepidation because it's 
directly contrary to what Johnny had asked me. Like one of the few things he told me to do was not that. <laughs> and then I and then I did that thing. So I that's the humanization aspect of it that you were talking about yes. earlier. That's uh, yeah. It, it definitely helped. It definitely helped shape his character as as a as a uh, a morally good outlaw. Right. Um, it also just helped me understand the world a lot better. I went down to um, Franklin, uh, south of Bowling Green, the retired state police detective who had investigated Johnny Boone's son's death was a um, chief deputy um, at that sheriff's office and um, told him while why I was there, I was like, well, you know, the deputy U.S. Marshal went on America's Most Wanted and suggested that Johnny had killed Jeff. And the first thing he told me was, well, no one called me. Um, Meaning nobody from the marshal's office called him to check out whether or not they thought that this death was anything other than a suicide. Because he said, had they called me, I would have told them that it was one of the clearest cut suicides in the history of death. Um, One of the things he told me was um, working as a state police detective, one sees a number of suicides um, and by and large, Uh, For the most part, suicide victims don't leave notes, Um, but Jeff did. Um, Also, so did uh, the the other girl who killed herself. They both left notes. And she had Zoloft in her system, had threatened to hang herself to her mother like the weekend before she hanged herself. Like it was pretty clear cut. And... uh, um, so having to go back and look at those and talk to the, the police officers who work those investigations and say, you know, any chance there was some funny business here? In both cases, both the Washington County Sheriff and this retired state police detective were both like, no, nope. Um, and so and so that was that was really good. I mean, th- think for me personally and for the book, even though Johnny asked me not to do it, it was a long, a long answer to your question of what Johnny thinks about the book. Haven't. Haven't gotten that deep with them yet. Phone calls from jail are weird. They cut off on you after 10 minutes. Um, so it's tricky to have long, good conversations. Uh, yeah, another question in the back. Did you have a question? Oh, I was just going to say, in the whole um, marijuana syndicate, mm-hmm. was there a lot of balance among them, or were they all just pretty chill? So was there a lot of violence or were they chill? Uh, there, um, there was both of those things. So uh, like any uh, extra legal enterprise, there's no um, civil court to go to if you, were, if you feel wronged by someone in a business transaction. The only uh, way to deal with that is on one's own, right? So there's, there's always violence inherent in uh, black market economies, right? So yes. However, generally speaking, it was fairly laid back and people resolved issues uh, fairly well. The problem was when cocaine came in in a big way. And some of these guys got involved in cocaine real heavy and some did not. And there was a dividing line between 
these marijuana guys who were exclusively marijuana operating, um, who knew how to um, take care of their obligations, to pay the people that they owed money to, uh, to make sure that there wasn't any, uh, you know, sort of conflicts in the system. You know, like what these guys would do is they would, you know, a, a farmer with a lot of acreage, they'd say, look, here's 10 grand. Don't go over to those acres this summer. Just don't, just don't go over there. Yeah, just don't, just don't, like, yeah, those 20 acres you got over there, you just don't even, you just don't even worry about that. <laughs> right? So. And they would, they would just, like, ignore it. Yeah, I mean, for 10 grand, for doing nothing. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> I mean, you know, like, it's even, like, less than nothing. Like, they're being asked not to tend to their acreage. All they have to do is just not go over there. Um but if you but if you promise somebody that you're going to give them ten grand to not go over to that part of, the, of their farm, and then um, harvest time comes and goes, and you don't get your ten grand, then hey, where's my ten grand? And I'm, you know, I'm sure as sure as heck not going to let you do that next year if I didn't get what you told me I was going to get this year. Whereas these guys who were exclusively involved in marijuana knew to take care of those sorts of obligations. But once you start freebasing cocaine uncut straight from the jungle, all that kind of stuff just kind of goes away. That's ten grand you can spend on yourself. And these guys were buying brand new Corvettes with cash and wrapping them around trees on one night and buying a new Corvette the next day. Lions, just, right? What's that? Lions. Oh, yeah, they had lions. Um, uh, they had lions. Uh, there was bears, and uh, Johnny Boone had Rottweilers. He was a dog man. Some were some were dog men, and some were some were cat men. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I talk about a, in the book about uh, dogs with their vocal cords cut out. I got in some trouble. The one fact check I got was from someone who said that those dogs in the Minnesota farm were not vocal vocal. Uh, uh, what do you call it when you get the vocal cords removed? Um, uh, laryndectomies. They were not laryndectomy dogs. Um, so I think I might have gotten that part wrong. Um, but otherwise, yeah, big dogs, big cats. Um, but uh, if they if they stayed away from the cocaine, for the most part, these guys tended their business really well. They drove farm trucks. They didn't. They 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 weren't. Uh, they weren't flashy, but when they when the cocaine came in, all that went out the window, and people just started acting crazy. Um, and then and then it all, and then it started unwinding, and everything was in the the end was inevitable was after that. Was cocaine a big a, a big thing in Kentucky? Oh yeah, I mean you one wouldn't think, but yes. And these guys had tapped into. Um, and you know, uh, an international drug network where they were getting this stuff wholesale from the top line. So uh, there's this thing. There's um, a curious conspiracy theory that I will entertain with you now. That in 1979, so a lot of the marijuana consumed in America in the 70s came from Colombia. Uh, Columbia Gold, no Columbia, Panama Red, Acapulco Gold, Columbia, uh, Mount. That's from that's Hawaii. Yeah. So, um, 
A lot of marijuana coming from Colombia. But in 79, the marijuana crop of Colombia is ruined, is like noticeably terrible. So all this marijuana is coming from Colombia that's worthless. And right behind it is cocaine. So there's an unfounded conspiracy theory that the, the 1979 Colombia marijuana crop was intentionally sabotaged to plug the drug system with bad product in order to prime that drug network with cocaine. Um, now, whether that's true or not it would be hard to know, but that's what I was told by some people from the time, like, you know, like looking back, um, something was up. And so that's 7980 is when cocaine comes in. That's kind of gets into a question that I wanted to ask. Um, so like, I know you talk in the book about, uh, marijuana being introduced to the people in Kentucky. Was this like the cornbread mafia? Was this like the first major experience uh, America had with marijuana? Like how did it kind of get over here? I guess. So that's a very good question. Uh, the Nixon administration commissions a study to be done and a report is, is issued in the early seventies and it's called the, uh, hold on. The Vietnam drug user returns home or something like that. The, the Vietnam. <clears throat> anyway, it's a, it's a, a study that looks at the effects of marijuana consumption in America as it relates to the Vietnam War. And what it finds is within two years of the Vietnam War starting, before the Vietnam War, marijuana use was confined to um, certain major American cities like Los Angeles, Chicago, New York, Miami. Right? Just, and basically that was it. Um, within two years, it completely homogenized the entire country, and either uh, draftees were smoking pot in Vietnam, in some cases within 48 hours of them landing in Vietnam, um, and if they didn't experience marijuana when they were in Vietnam, when they returned home, their friends had discovered marijuana while they were gone. Uh, yeah. So in this particular case, what happened is guys from Kentucky, from Marion County, were um, drafted or enlisted in the Vietnam War. And when they got over there, they realized what the value of marijuana was per pound. And because of the hemp for victory uh, growing hemp during World War II, there was still a lot of hemp that was growing wild behind various grandparents' barns. Mm -hmm. So they, they knew what the plant was. They just didn't realize its value until they went to Vietnam. And so when they came back from Vietnam, they were like, we're just going to grow this. <laughs> like, all, you, all they had to do was not get caught, and not getting caught with stuff is what they had been good at for a couple of generations right. by then. So, I mean, they were just, you know, like, the first recorded busts in Marion County are in, like, 76. So they had, you know, like four or five, six growing seasons under the belt by then. And the first, there's two crops busted in Marion County in 76, and they're both over five acres. Oh, wow. So they're growing at scale right away <laughs> uh, because they're farmers, right? So they're not just, like in California, in Oregon, these, these like, you know, dropout hippies who start growing 
uh, up in um, Mendocino and Humboldt County and those places, they're growing high quality small batch like garden patches. These guys in Marion County were growing it by the acre. <laughs> I mean, and so is that, what, is that about the time that they used to say that uh, marijuana was the number one cash crop in Kentucky over it, tobacco and soybeans? It became that way through this. Yes, ma'am. I mean, the 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 comparison was 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 pretty simple. You know, they, you could you could break your back growing tobacco and sell it for a dollar sixty a pound, or <laughs> You could work the same amount on this marijuana patch and make a thousand dollars a pound. Um, but in Kentucky, like the third largest producer behind Tennessee, California, I believe that was the case before state laws changed. Before yeah. medical and recreational pot started becoming widespread, I'm sure now my guess would be it would be California and Colorado, and then you've got you know. Goodness knows what's being grown in Alaska anymore, and uh, you got uh, Oregon and Washington State. Um, uh, Vegas and Nevada just went recreational legal um, as of the beginning of this year. So you've got a you've got eight states with recreational marijuana in Colorado right now. You've got over seven hundred licenses, seven hundred licenses for medical marijuana cultivation and over 600 licenses for recreational marijuana cultivation in Colorado alone. So um, the, the, the outdoor large-scale growing that Kentuckians were involved in in, in the 80s, that the, the helicopters and the marijuana ERAD uh, Essentially put a put, essentially put the kibosh on. No one's growing at the scale that these guys were able to grow on because they were they were they were working sort of under un, under the condition of anonymity. No one knew what they were up to. Now that people know the deal, um, the state police getting that good federal overtime money keeps those helicopters moving, and uh, it's hard to uh, it's hard to grow at the scale that these guys were growing at. But now that it's legal other places, it's mostly uh, indoor grown and the marketplace demands a certain level of quality of the product that, would, that was difficult to get, is difficult to get outdoors, even though these guys, for what they were growing at the time, were some of the best in the country at the time. But the way the industry has moved with uh, legalized medicinal and recreational, almost all that stuff is indoor grown. Although now those people are experimenting with growing outdoors um, because it costs less uh, for the energy. The, 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 the most expensive part of growing marijuana is, is the electricity costs uh, for the HVAC and for the lights. Well, that kind of answers my follow-up question. I wonder how people in your community feel or, and also these people that are involved because I've noticed this just anecdotal. Over the last 10 years, I've seen more of public acceptance, whether it's elderly people, farmers, and mostly coming from the elderly people, farmers that I talked to when I was running the political office. They say, why don't we just go ahead and legalize this? You know, Frankfurt's drowned or dying for new revenue sources to kind of help shore up the state retirement system. And when I would tell them at the time, I thought it was the third largest producing state, I said, yeah. But it sounds almost now that uh, 
and we've kind of lost the opportunity, but how do those people from your community feel where they, in the past they may have thought that was a bad reputation they had, but now they're seeing more of the national acceptance in larger uh, areas? Has that changed them, or has it have changed them, or did they say, no, we'd rather keep it illegal because it's tax-free? I mean, there's still bootleg black market marijuana getting grown where I'm in, in, in my community, but not to the scale. I mean, it's, it's, it's being grown like people grow their own tomatoes just to have and to, and to show off. Like, you know, like, like, you know, like this is what I grew. Uh, with, with now that we have legal hemp, the biggest uh, eliminator of outdoor bootleg marijuana is, is hemp pollen. Because you know hemp pollen will travel miles in the wind, and and, and by the bumblebee, and uh, hemp pollen in a marijuana patch will ruin everything. Because uh, it'll it'll put it all to seed, and a marijuana grower wants zero seeds. Uh, not to get into the in, in, into the gardening aspects of this, but so when you're talking about bootleg marijuana, you're talking about the unfertilized flower of the female plant. And what she's doing is she's secreting a resin onto her flower in order to make her flower sticky to attract pollen so that she can make seeds. And it's that resin that's psychoactive. And so a marijuana grower is starving the female plant of pollen in order to get her to make as much of that resin as she can make. And as soon as she gets pollinated, all of her energy turns into seed production and she's not making any resin anymore. So the, the THC content the THC content of that plant will go down and its value on the black market will go down. So um, hemp pollen is, you know, is rampant in Kentucky now. Uh, this summer there's 12,000 acres of legal industrial hemp. It might be why you have new allergies this year. There is new pollen in the air. That's exactly right. But could you see it? It kind of reminds me of out west when I moved down to Tucson one time. We couldn't find any mud. And this guy explained that I think that there might be, I've not seen it yet, but I wouldn't be surprised if there is not some sabotage of legal hemp fields um, or burning of legal hemp fields. Like, I can't imagine there not being some active resistance to this is this is a problem for our little bootleg community but to, you know to go on to answer your, your 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 wider question i know for a fact a handful of kentucky natives veterans who relocated to other states um in order to have safe access to medical marijuana um, and in some cases to be involved in the cultivation of legal recreational or medicinal marijuana um, uh, some fairly high profile guys in California and Colorado from Kentucky, veterans growing legal weed and paying taxes on it. Um, it's really frustrating because a guy like Johnny Boone, who's sitting in jail, awaiting trial, going to spend the rest of his life in prison, most likely with the current attorney general, um, unlikely that, that he would receive any sort of, um, any sort of, you know, uh, leniency. Um, especially with Jeff Sessions, uh, while while people with this skill set in, in Colorado are making good money, 
And in Colorado, as a felon, he can't have a license because there's background checks for licensees. But what a licensee will do in Colorado is hire a felon as a consultant. And the consultant can't touch the product, but the consultant can say, do this, do that, turn that light off, do this thing right now. And keeps his hands clean, but gets a check, pays taxes on that check. So, I mean, we're basically, you know, we're, we're, we're locking people, we're locking Johnny Boone up for life without parole because he's in the wrong zip code. So it's, it's, it's no longer sustainable that we can just pretend like, oh, well, like, the more you think about it, 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 can, it can make a person angry. Um, and, you know, you know what, what's to be done in Frankfurt? Like, something ought to be done in Frankfurt. If you see Joe Bowen, tell him I said hello. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck with that. What's your dad say? Uh, so my dad is, you know, a baby boomer Republican. Um, I'm working on it. <laughs> I think that my I, I'm pretty confident that my dad would vote yes for it when it when it came to the Senate floor for a vote, but he's not going to be the bill sponsor, um, which is frustrating to me. But uh, you know, we get interesting. I mean, I don't know I don't know what the political risk of him doing it is, except for except for he he represents Casey County in addition to Marion and. And he owes a lot to the people of Casey County for his for his political victory. Um, so Casey County and Marion County probably could not be more opposite in their opinions on this matter. And so I'm, I think a lot of my father's hesitance towards it is related to him being conscious of the people that he represents in Casey County probably not being real happy about it. Um, is my guess, although you know I don't know that for certain. For certain, I'm certainly not speaking for him, but that's my that's my feeling when I when I talk to him about it. He has to be so proud of you for the Oh sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. For now. <laughs> Anything else? This is going good. Like uh, you're Ed Marksberry, right? Right, just make sure. <laughs> I'd like to know a little bit. Older, man. <laughs> I was like, I, I knew, I knew, I knew I recognized you. I was just making sure that I, that I recognized you right. <laughs> I was gonna say, I'd like to know a little bit more about your research process when you tackle stuff like this. I know you talked a little bit about that, but just in general, when you get a new new story, something like, well, where do you go first to attack something new? So the research process is, you know, I, I mean, I am. I end up going down. A, I end up going down a rabbit hole on some of this stuff, and then just kind of coming up for air and having like you know. Uh, so the main ingredient in any of these things is to create a timeline, and with something big like this, it almost requires uh, an Excel spreadsheet, which is the last thing that a creative enterprise needs to have. Is like spreadsheets. <laughs> Right, like there's nothing that kills inspiration and imagination more than uh, an Excel document. But what's really ha handy about an Excel document is you build it, and you in, in one of the fields is date, and then you can just put everything into it, and then sort it by date, and then it lines itself up as like here, 
is this really robust timeline, and then you use that timeline as the outline for whatever chapter you're working on. You can go back to it, and you add in uh, information information and dates from all these different sources, and so new things that you wouldn't think about pop up because the dates are on top of each other. Sure. Like, oh, these two things happened on the same day, or this happened first and this happened second when I thought it was going to be the other way around. So now I have to think about this again because I thought A caused B, but now it looks like B caused A. All right. So um, so the timeline is 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 the is the fundamental reset like like everything goes on the timeline and then and then the outline for a chapter comes off of the timeline sure. okay that makes sense if that yeah so uh, for instance right now i'm working on a story about eric khan the <laughs> yeah. disgraced fugitive runaway social security attorney from <laughs> eastern kentucky uh and that case has been going on since like 2006, oh, wow. right? So it's like an 11 year saga of baloney and great commercials. Oh, uh, <laughs> uh, no, they were not great commercials. <laughs> oh yeah. I meant that sarcastic. Um, <laughs> but if you want to go in the weeds on Eric Kahn commercials, I got them on the head now. So he, <laughs> there's this one. So he hired Obama girl and Ralph Stanley to cut a music video for him that was Ralph Stanley singing Man of Constant Sorrows but with different lyrics about Eric Kahn. Oh my god, it's really twisted. And uh, the one of the like in the back end of this like two minute long TV commercial, which is like four times as long as a TV commercial should be, uh, there's a line in that song that says something like he's a superhero without a cape. And then the next line is he learned Spanish off of a tape. <laughs> Which is just like, why would you say that? Uh, that is really strange. Um, so, because it, there's like, I was like, this story's been around forever. I don't even know. Like, I, I wrote a, uh, a freelance for the Washington Post from, uh, from Louisville. And um, FBI held a press conference last Friday to update the, the, the investigation and uh, so I wrote a story based on the press conference where I thought they were going to have like actual information, but they didn't. Um, but then I pitched a follow-up to my editor since I had him on the hook for the story that these whistleblowers from West Virginia who had caused this story to happen, like, I should go talk to them. And um, so I had to build a timeline for this whole thing because I didn't know anything other than like, that it like you know in the background I I had heard about this thing for years and knew about these TV commercials and but I didn't have a sense of the the TikTok of how we got here so I went back and like these girls these women from from Huntington in the Huntington West Virginia Social Security Administration office from 2006 to 2011 were complaining and informing on their supervisors in this office that something was wrong and they just got retaliated against and ignored and nothing for five years and then a reporter from the wall street journal wrote a story about it how that connection happened i'm still unclear about but in may of 2011 the wall street journal wrote a story about this particular judge in huntington approving so many disability claims it turns out not in the story, but it turns out we later learn 
Eric Kahn was paying this judge like 10 grand a month to approve all of his clients' disabilities claims. Um, but that was 2011. So then two years later, there's a, a Senate subcommittee hearing about all this stuff, like the Senate Committee for Homeland Security and Government Affairs Subcommittee on Investigations, chaired by Senator Coburn, um, brings in these whistleblowers and, and, and attorneys from the Social Security Administration, and then the third panel brings in Eric Kahn and this and and one of these judges from West Virginia, and just you know like you know it's a bloodbath of a Senate hearing. But again, he walks out of that place in 2013 scot free. He doesn't get indicted for two and a half years after the Senate hearings. Uh, and only then, like the tail end of the statute of limitations, and, and only because um, something like the U.S. Attorney's Office in Lexington wouldn't handle it, the U.S. Attorney's Office in West Virginia wouldn't handle it, it required a special prosecutor from Kansas and the Department of Justice uh, Financial Crimes Unit to get involved and unravel the whole thing. So they didn't bring in an indictment until the tail end of the statute of limitations was about to run on it. Um, and I didn't realize any of that until I built a timeline. So then I'm like, oh, all right, all right. Um, and so now I have like a, a sense of where we're at on, on this thing because I went back and plotted uh, how we got here from where we started. And um, a timeline when you're dealing with something, especially if something goes across a number of years, um, is always an important first step so that you know where all the pieces are. So you don't mix. So, so you don't end up mixing something up. That makes sense. One more thing. Uh, did they any screenwriters contact you on this So the book to film process is a nightmare. You know, uh, you know. God bless Sherman Brown, but I'm operating on a little higher level. <laughs> um, so Paramount has the option. Uh, the Paramount's TV division. Um, it's it's moving at a at a at a, at a rather slow pace, um, but I feel like this calendar year they might actually pull the trigger on uh, an hour-long TV drama. There seems to be some pieces in place. Normally, they've been uh, extending my option uh, by twelve months at a time, uh, but this time. They only extended it by six months, which shorted me half of what I was counting on, which was great. But uh, what it means is they didn't want to pay me any more than they have to if they think they're going to execute something this calendar year. Um, so it was good news that I got screwed out of six months of an option um, because... My, the purchase price is going to be the same no matter how many times they extend the option. So it's not like they're giving me something that's going to be against another amount later. So they have to pay me uh, the full amount for the option extensions, and they only paid me six months this time. So that's a good sign that something might happen this year. So you know the author Dennis uh, He's a, a mystery suspense writer. Okay. Um, he once said, I met him, I worked at Borders Books and Music 
Okay. In Ann Arbor. Okay. And um, he was doing a little talk, and we were asking about you know some of his uh, books have been optioned for mm-hmm. movies, and he and he said he said it's like the scariest and most weird thing ever because you really have no control. That's right. And he said the only two people that have control are Patterson. Stephen King. <laughs> they can call more shots. Well, I think, I think that you can add to that list George R. R. Martin. Right? <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, from, but it was just funny because when he was he was just like you know he was a very accomplished author and um, you know he's like you know you don't know whether to sign or not because you don't know what they're going to do to your book. <laughs> from from the L.A. perspective, what I am is the underlying property rights owner which means uh bottom of the totem pole lowest rung on the ladder like you know get this guy away from us like 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 get his right and then also like get his rights and make him sign a non-disparagement clause so even if we really screw this up bad he can't say anything bad about us in in, in public uh yeah that's that's the way it is it's it you know it's like you know, thank you for all those years that you dedicated your life to give us this book. Now get the hell away from us. <laughs> it's not, uh, yeah, it's, it's not like a, it's not like a warm, like, you know, lovey-dovey type, uh, uh, kumbaya type experience. It's, uh, it's the, it's the business part of show business, yeah. which is, you know, exactly. it's, yeah. you know, not, not pretty. And, and I imagine that once, once it happens, I'll be very upset for a bunch of things and won't be able to talk about it. <laughs> so I'm looking really, really looking forward to that. <laughs> you can come back here and talk to us. No, I won't be able to. <laughs> you can come back after hours. I can go back and talk. Yeah. yeah, we'll, we'll do, we'll do it with, uh, um, now you know how it's silhouetted with, uh, with a, like a vocoder <laughs> pedal on the. Any more questions? Well, thanks for coming, guys. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thank you.